Hello everybody and welcome back to Ear Read This. My name's Ash and following on from our latest episode on the life of Sylvia Plath, today I'm once again joined by Carl Rollison to discuss, among other things, his book The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, which came out last year. To find out more about Carl's books and his podcast, A Life in Biography, check the episode description box below. I started off by asking Carl about the style of The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, which seemed quite different to that of his earlier biography, American Isis. I read one after the other, and I found that The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, there was a a change in tone. I I felt Mm -hmm. like um, it was much more personal. I mean, you opened with the story you just mentioned about your trip to England. And I I want to ask you about meeting James Mason as well. (laughs) You you mentioned that you bumped into James Mason, which sounded fascinating. But you, you, it seems like throughout you're you're engaging the reader in conversation a lot more. I wanted to ask you what accounted for the for that change in tone. That's very interesting. I think you're you're quite right, and it was quite deliberate. And I wanted to write a different kind of biographical narrative. I wanted to to um, I felt that with the first Plath biography, uh, I. I was happy with the way it turned out. Uh, it, I did what I thought I needed to do for that biography. But I felt that if I was going to do another book on Plath, there were things, this is one of the frustrations of a biographer is you identify with the subject. And there are things that happens to the subject that happened to you or something like that. You feel there's something about that person that you really understand, which is often one of the motivations, certainly for my biographies. And yet, it's difficult to do because when people pick up a book about Sylvia Plath, they don't want to read about me. <laughs> you know, it, by definition, they don't want to read about me. So I had to find a way in which, and you know, I am in the book, but it's not. It's not the book shouldn't be called, and it isn't Sylvia Plath and me. You know, it's not me in that sense. But I thought by beginning with that personal story that I was 15 years old, I came to London and I was an actor. And like Sylvia Plath, I came to England with a sense of destiny. And I knew I was destined to be something great because you mentioned it. I met James Mason (laughs) in the Tower of London. Now, how could that be an accident of all things? It must be destined. You know, and I think yeah. this is what I'm getting at and why I think I can get away with it in the last days of Sylvia Plath is the subtext of the last days of Sylvia Plath is, I know this person. I'm not a woman. And yet there are things about her that I have gone through having lost a parent at an early age, having been in England at the, virtually like two months after she died, although I, I hadn't even heard of Sylvia Plath then. Mm. And then having that experience, just like she meets T.S. Eliot, well, I meet James Mason, so there. Mm. <laughs> there are there parallels that I don't, even, I don't even put it that way in the book, but I hope the reader will see that. And that, mm. that liberates me. There, there's a, you're under a kind of constraint when you're a biographer, you know, unlike mm. writing a novel where the narrator can be anybody you want. People want, in some sense, objectivity in a biography. Uh, sure, you're going to have a point of view. You're obviously going to have a bias, but they want to they want to make sure they can believe in the events. So even when I write mm. about Ted Hughes, for example, I'm pretty careful. I think in American Isis in trying to you know explain him in the last days of Sylvia Plath. It's not that I'm not careful. 
but I'm more interested in showing it from Plath's point of view. And sometimes in one of the chapters, I even write almost in her voice, you know, what she's thinking and feeling that day, uh, the way, say, Henry James would do in The Ambassadors uh, when he writes about Strether. And he doesn't make Strether the first person narrator, but he inhabits uh, Strether's consciousness. So that's kind of risky, especially for a biographer. But I try to claim that authority by the way I begin the book. Uh, and then I, I continue that at certain strategic points, like when I'm going to interview El Alvarez, where you know I know certain things about him. I've read his papers at the uh, British Library. Uh, and I know he's reluctant to talk about some things. And I'm sort of thinking out loud about how am I going to get him to talk about all that. So I try to include the reader in the last days of Sylvia Plath, in a sense, in the drama of the biographer's life. The book has to somehow begin, establish that tone at the beginning, or the reader won't, really won't like it. Uh, I think they'll say, well, why is he talking about himself? I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, that's not what I bought the book for. You mentioned in the biography, and also um, uh, you've stressed it in your podcast that you 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 felt it, it was it was necessary to say that her her last Sylvia Plath's last days were not inevitable. Yes, and I was really interested to ask you what what do you think has attracted so many people to the idea that she was it sort of in inverted commas doomed? I think because she tried to commit suicide more than once. I think that's one reason because she did it at an early age, and so people read back you know, from the actual suicide, because they can read certain poems, which they, they think is, you know, some sense of premonition of suicide. I think partly it's because they don't know anything about suicide. Um, and they don't real, realize or think about what, what, what it means to be suicidal, which almost always means to be what's called clinically depressed. What does that mean? It means you're in a kind of tunnel that your horizon is so limited, you, you can't, and I've seen this, my mother was like this when she, she died of ovarian cancer, and uh, she kept her head down all the time, and I, I kept trying to find ways to lift her spirits, and I remember one day, I don't remember even what the joke was, but I told her some kind of joke, she picked up her head, and she laughed, and she said, that's funny, and then she went right back into her depression, just like that, so when you see things like that, when you read William Styron's book, Darkness Visible, about how his, what it was like to be depressed, when people say things like, how could she commit suicide? She had two kids. How could she commit suicide? She had so much to live for. They don't understand what depression or suicide is. Um, if she hadn't been in England, if it hadn't been the coldest winter on record, if she hadn't had, and I spent some time on this in the last days of Sylvia Plath, had these feelings going back to this novel, The Snake Pit, uh, that mm. she had read and was also a movie with Olivia de Havilland, in which institutionalization was equated with losing yourself, not finding yourself. You're not going to find yourself in these institutions. And then you, you take the medication. She's, she's taking a, a particular... Um, antidepressant, uh, well, one of its side effects is chills. Chills in the coldest winter on record? Come on. So there's a whole concatenation of events here. That's why I say, Arthur Miller said this about Marilyn Monroe. People say the same thing about Marilyn Monroe, that, oh, she was bound to kill herself. 
He said she just needed a little luck. And that sounds like a superficial comment or a wish fulfillment, but I'm not so sure it is. I'm not so sure it is. I think life is contingent. You know, there's this great um, scene in Conrad's Nostromo in which Deku, uh, his main character is out in a boat. And for the first time in his life, he doesn't have any of the props of his class, his culture, his society in this boat. And he, he commits suicide. So I think without that sense of empathy, without that sense of what drives people to suicide, it's just too easy to say it's some kind of moral failing. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and Plath herself could lapse into that because after all, she was part of the culture. She could get down on herself for feeling this way and feeling that, you know, as people say, well, just snap out of it. It's what my dissertation director said to me when I was going through a depression. Well, just snap out of it. <laughs> yeah, pull your socks up. Yeah, pull your socks up. Yeah. I mean, Primo Levi committed suicide. He survived the concentration camps, for God's sake. And yet he threw himself down the stairs uh, in a clinical depression. Uh, you, you mentioned um, Al Alvarez. He provides you with this, this really memorable quote, which I, I hope I won't butcher. But he, he describes uh, in, in the wake of Plath's death, Alwyn and Ted Hughes' Soviet view of history. Yes. Saying that they were more than prepared to airbrush people out of it. For, for listeners who, who won't be familiar with this, could you, could you describe some of the difficulties facing biographers like yourself and those that came before you in trying to get their hands on, not just get their hands on archives of Plath, but be able to say what they want to about Plath? Yes. Um, and uh, for listeners who are interested, the last chapter of American Isis deals with this. Uh, Ted Hughes's efforts and Owen Hughes's efforts to, to suppress the, the facts of, of uh Sylvia Plath's life. Um, Hughes uh, either lost or burned at least one of her journals. Uh, mm -hmm. Something may still turn up somewhere because he said some of it was lost. He looked upon biographers as interlopers. How can you possibly, he would say, how could you possibly understand Sylvia Plath since you weren't married to her? You weren't there at that time. You weren't an eyewitness. That's the sort of the attitude he took. And uh, until very recently, his daughter also took toward biographers. She's, she's changed a good deal. Uh, I think she's learned a good deal uh, with the release of her mother's last letters, the ones anyway that we, we know. I think there's another thousand out there, possibly, really? that we don't know about. Yeah. But so Ted Hughes treated biographers, didn't matter, male or female, as... First of all, you have to remember, as biographers, at best, we're second raters. We're not poets. We're not novelists, right? Uh, we, 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 don't, we don't have that calling card. Uh, we can't possibly know. And what I try to do in the last chapter of American Isis is to say, neither did Ted Hughes. Look at all the mistakes he made while she was alive. And look at the go through the whole record of his statements about Sylvia Plath and various writings. It's constantly changing because that's the nature of biography. So the idea that he held the cards and we don't have any of them. You know, it's like the analogy I like to, to choose is you can look at yourself in the mirror, but what you can't do is walk around yourself. You can't see those other angles. 
That's what the biographer is getting at. It's true. The biographer can't get directly into your mind, but there are all other, there, there are all other kinds of compensating factors that allow the biographer to tell the story. So to simply say, well, biography is no good because you can't get inside the person's mind. Well, how much inside your mind can you get? And how trustworthy is your own memoir or memory of what happened to you? What I'm saying is there's no 100%. There's no 100%. You can't judge biography by some fictional ideal 100%. That's why uh, the answer to one biography is always another biography. That's why I wrote two books on Sylvia Plath. I was astonished. I think listeners would be astonished to know the level of control Ted Hughes and his sister had over Plath's publications after her death yeah there was no I was reading yeah. your book and I saw on my on my bookshelf my collected poems of Sylvia Plath and I you know I was reading in your book T Ted Hughes decided what order they go in Ted Hughes decided what's juvenilia Ted Hughes decides what doesn't get put in and what happens he decides who gets permission to quote which for many years meant nobody gets permission to quote from from her work uh, and uh, that's a whole other issue, the issue of fair use, of how you get to quote even when you don't have permission. That that that's, could be a subject for a whole different show. Uh, <laughs> but because the story can be told. But he he again went back to this notion, only I can know. Uh, there's the there's a sense of control, and it's just done terrible things to publishers. Uh, in terms of what they think is allowed. They don't really, in most cases, I have to say, publishers don't really understand the law. And of course, they're not big risk takers. The, the big risk taker is the biographer, if you can get the publisher to publish the book. It really had a, a profound effect on how I, th how I think of Ted Hughes, to be honest, that you paint a really compelling sort of counter-portrait. I, I mean, I've read a, a couple of biographies of, of Plath or Hughes, and mm -hmm. they, even the more sympathetic to Plath biographies I've read paint a picture of her as somehow terminably difficult. Yeah, even if they don't, even if they don't give her an, an exact diagnosis, they sort of she's sort of impossible. And Ted is this put upon northerner who, right. you know, right. how could he handle her? He's a simple Yorkshireman at heart, even yeah. though, with the heart of a poet, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's what I wanted to do in the last days of Sylvia Plath is to show his depressions. His up and down, yes. you know, there's a wonderful uh, Kate Jamison, the psychologist, has this wonderful term, assortative coupling, uh, in which uh, people get married by finding each other having the same characteristics. And if you read Sylvia's letters and journals carefully, you'll, you'll, you can spot, sometimes she even uses the term depression, Ted Hughes's depressions. And how as a male uh, in a particular kind of society, he can deal with that and get away with that uh, and even medicate himself uh, when the focus is on her, as you say, as the problem. What I wanted to do was to shift that weight in the last days of Sylvia Plath and to even it out. Uh, he says, after all, he said this to uh, Plath's friend, uh, it was either her or me. That can mean all sorts of things, but there is there is a suicidal component there uh, that he's very obliquely addressing. Yeah, and I, I I was thinking as well about people like Olwyn, who 
it would be easy to come away from particularly, yeah, the last chapter of American Isis, but also Last Days of Sylvia Plath and think Olwyn Hughes is a real monster. And then you realise, but she's only really acting Ted's euphemistically described or evaded policies, right? She's just become the enforcer of kind of his complacency. He's passive aggressive. Yeah. She has no time for that. She's just plain aggressive. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it, it was it was really interesting that the light that uh, that cast on on all of them. Um, I was going to ask you as well. You in one of your, the episodes of your podcast I was listening to earlier called Plethora of Plath, yes. where you talk about all of these biographies and um, you describe a couple of uh, points of difference you had. And one of them you wanted to make clear was how much Plath reflected the culture of her time. You mentioned the Superman radio show earlier, but also the 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 comic shows, the Jack Benny shows could you tell us a little bit about her her relationship to those yeah one of the one of the things remarkable things about jack benny on radios it's less true of his uh, television series on radio what was interesting about jack benny was um how biting and sarcastic the humor is and how much of it is directed at him but i mean they're all it's a cast of characters who read the bell jar and listen to Jack Benny on radio and you'll see where the bell jar comes from. Because what happens in Benny is, uh, for instance, one of Jack Benny's neighbors, and he really was a neighbor, was the actor Ronald Coleman. And what happens in the radio show is Ronald Coleman is always devising ways to not meet Jack Benny. <laughs> You know, not not show up at the party. You know, it's hard to do because they're neighbors. But, you know, Jack is just such a oaf, such an offensive person. This this is what the radio show is built around. I mean, it's tremendous. Uh, and uh, the funny thing is about the bell jars, it's very cutting and sarcastic, even about um, people who are helpful to Platt because she saw human foibles. And the fact that you had helped her or assisted her didn't mean her intelligence was going to shut down, you know, that there weren't things about you that she wasn't going to notice. This drove her mother nuts. You know, her mother thought, this is how terrible of Sylvia to do this, uh, you know, to our friends, to our family, to our relatives and so on. Everything in Jack Benny is fair game. Everything in Sylvia Plath is fair game. Because all that matters is the comedy, and people don't think of so of the Bell Jar as comedy, but there, there's tragedy, but there's also some real comedy in there, especially the way men are treated. I mean, men are really just not with it at all. <laughs> and that's why I think the book is so appealing now in the age of Me Too and so on. It's so, it's so contemporary, so interesting in that way. She learned all that. The other thing uh, about Superman is, and, and again, is less important uh, in, on the, the TV series than it is in the radio series is. In the radio series, Clark Kent, the, the, that other part of Superman, is he's a journalist. He works for the Daily Planet, both on TV and on radio. But on radio, he actually does some journalistic work. He is the journalist's hero. That don't get on TV. And that's why often in her early diaries, when Plath talks about what she might be, poetry is there, but so is journalism. 
journalism is honored. It's, it's, not, it's not part of this pecking order at all. And that's again, sort of interesting because our culture has so changed in terms of, you know, the catholicity of interest. One of the other differences you mentioned was in terms of uh, your own biography was the opening you mentioned, is it Ruth Boitcher? Yes. Uh, also known as Barnhouse. Barnhouse, I can't remember which, that's her maiden which name. Which way around it is with her married name. Yeah. Maiden name. Um, this this was a an archive that wasn't available to to earlier biographers. This was her therapist who you, who yes. you mentioned, mentioned earlier. That must have been a huge discovery. Um, it was. What was it like finding that? And it, it, I had been kept in touch with Smith College where I had done a lot of work on the first class biography. And uh, I knew there had been a lawsuit with one of, uh, involving one of Plath's other biographers who never published her biography involving some of Sylvia's letters. And the letters eventually went to Smith uh, and they became part of the Ruth Barnhouse or Ruth Boisher collection. When I first saw the news account of this, this uh, lawsuit in which Smith retrieved these letters from the biographer, I got very interested in what they had because they said part of the Ruth Barnhouse papers. So I went to Smith and they let me look at a lot of the papers, not all of them, because some of them are very sensitive dealing with her, you know, her patients, their confidentiality problems. But Boisher had, uh, or Barnhouse, had, uh, had a background in terms of her relationships w- with her mother and with her parents, her father, powerful father and mother, uh, and living in Europe, was fully equipped, I thought, to, Ruth Barnhouse was fully equipped to understand Sylvia Plath. Now, in most of the recent biographies, including Heather Clark's biography, she calls her Ruth Boisher. Uh, Ruth Boisher is not exactly criticized, but said, you know, it's pointed out that she was a young therapist. The, the, the treatment of Plath was incomplete. There were certain things in terms of getting very close to the patient that professional therapists aren't supposed to do. Reminds me a bit of the psychiatrist Ralph Greenhouse and uh, uh, Marilyn Monroe and the whole issue of transference. Uh, therapists trying to use that transference to actually help the patient and making the patient, in his case, part of the family. Well, in a way, Plath became part of Ruth uh, Boisher's family. Uh, And many biographers see this as a negative. I see it as a positive. I'm seriously doubt, I can't prove it, but I'm not sure Plath would have recovered from her first serious depression when she was 20 without Ruth who I like to call Ruth Barnhouse, uh, that Ruth Barnhouse was absolutely essential, crucial to, in a sense, Plath's re-emerging into the world. I think they met at a crisis point in the same way that Marilyn Monroe met not a therapist so much as an acting teacher, Lee Strasberg, who's also been much criticized for manipulating Monroe. And yet I think those figures like Lee Strasberg and Ruth Barnhouse are absolutely crucial to these figures who, after all, Plath distrusted. She was very interested in psychology, but she, she, dis, she distrusted therapy. That's one of the reasons why she wasn't doing well. You know, they, in desperation, they turned to this young therapist, Ruth Barnhouse, thinking that maybe there'd be some identification between these two women because they were utterly failing. 
uh, in treating her at, at McLean Hospital. Uh, they didn't know where to go. It was a, a last act to try to bring Plath out of her depression, and it worked. So it's very difficult for me, after seeing how much these two women had in common, to criticize her. From a professional point of view, I can see people criticizing her. From a human biographical point of view, I wanted to point out in the last days of Sylvia Plath, these two women were essential to one another. Before we go, I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the, the your third uh, biography, your upcoming uh, Day by Day, which as its title implies, sounds incredibly um, ambitious. Uh, what's the process like when you are trying to account for that much material? It's an arduous process uh, day by day <laughs> in the sense that, and the book will you know ultimately be a failure because you won't learn about <laughs> every day. Uh, it's mm. impossible. But with Plath, it's more possible than with almost anyone else because she started keeping diaries at the age of 12 and writing poetry you know, by the time she was eight. Uh, mm. So there's a lot there. What I'm trying to do is configure the journals, the diaries, the poems, the prose. You know, only about maybe 25% of class prose has ever been published. For instance, she wrote a long paper about um, uh, Amy Lowell's poem, Patterns. I've written a biography of Amy Lowell. Um, and I'm also going to write a piece about, you know, what she thinks of Amy Lowell's patterns. It's an attempt really to show what gets left out of the biographies. In spite of all these biographies, there's a tremendous amount that's left out about her childhood, about her childhood reading. You could teach a whole course in children's literature, several courses, just using a syllabus based on the books that Plath read up to the age of 15, 16 years old. Uh, and so what I'm having to do now in Sylvia Plath Day by Day, for example, is many of these books have been forgotten, even though they were award-winning books, children's books, children's biographies, children's uh, novels, and so on, is annotate them to give you briefly a sense of what the book is about. And also the radio shows, uh, not just Jack Benny and Superman, but there was one she was very fond of called The Great Gildersleeve. And some of these old radio programs are still available uh, on the internet. And so I have links to all these shows so that you can, that particular day, if you want to listen to that show that she was listening to, you can. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's quite exciting. I was supposed to do this book in 125,000 words. I think I'll have 125 words by the time we reach 1956, when she meets Ted Hughes. It's going to have to be at least two volumes. Oh, well, I, I cannot wait for that. That, that. that sounds so exciting. Carl, thank you so much for this. Sorry, sorry to, um, sorry to overrun a bit there. That's fine. I, I could, I could keep, keep talking for ages. Um, well, as you see, I can too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I really, I mean, I, I absolutely love both, both books. And thank I, you. I'm really enjoying the podcast as well. It's, it's wonderful. Thanks um, very much. Thanks a lot. Brill, we'll have a lovely day. You, you too. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> And that's it for today, folks. A huge thank you once again to Carl Rollison for coming on the show. Remember, you can find links to all of his books and his podcast, A Life and Biography, in the episode description box below. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Mm -hmm.